The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The words should be on the screen behind me. It says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would lead us in your word this morning. We ask that you would open up our hearts and be receptive to what you have to say to us by your word this morning. God, would you <clears throat> inflame our hearts that, we might, that our affections might be warmed up towards you, Lord. Grow in us a deep passion to glorify you as Johann prayed earlier, to glorify you in every facet of our lives. Father, where we need to be convicted of sin, sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful, sinful behavior, Lord, by your spirit, would you come and do the work that only you can do? Where we need to be encouraged, Lord, and to throw away our downcast hearts, Lord, and instead lift our hearts to you and be encouraged by you, Lord. Would you direct us in that, Father? We ask these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Um, well, in this uh, passage this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and it's the beginning of a new series that we are starting for the next seven weeks today. And just to give you a little bit of background info for what this letter is all about, and, and by the way, this is something that we like to do a lot at LCC. We like to, to walk through books of the Bible. We, we want our main diet of teaching to be God's Word, just walking through it verse by verse, passage by passage, walking through this part of the Bible. And so just to give you a little bit of background information for this book of Titus, it's uh, it might not be necessarily uh, a book that you we're all familiar with, but it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor named Titus. And Titus was leading a group of house churches on uh, an island uh, in Greece called, on the Greece called Crete. The Apostle Paul had actually planted those churches. He had started those churches some years earlier, but then he had to move on because of some, some trouble in Ephesus. And then later on, he, he wrote back to Titus to encourage him and to continue to encourage him to, to finish the work, to continue the work of, of this church planting mission, but also um, to, to really vouch for Titus as a leader in these churches, in these house churches all throughout Crete. Now, Crete was an interesting place. The people of Crete were known for lying and for deception and for laziness and for gluttony. In fact, there was an ancient colloquial term um, for a liar, which was this word kretizo, which comes from the word, Greek, uh, from the word Crete. 
And so basically, if you were traveling in the area and you, you were kind of trying to stay out of trouble, you should stay away from Crete, stay away from there. You know, there's some, um, I don't know, not really in, in Australia that much, I guess, but I, I remember as kids, we used to joke about all the time that I, I, I'm from the north side of Brisbane and we'd, whenever you'd meet someone from the south side of Brisbane, you'd say, oh, I'm so glad you got out alive, you know. Um, we'd make these jokes about people, of the Southsiders. Uh, Crete was actually like that, that kind of place. It, it wasn't a necessarily safe place. And so what should we expect to find in, find in a church in a place like Crete, in a place like this? Well, we'd probably find the exact same thing that we'd find in pretty much every single church that has ever existed. Sinners who struggle between the tension of the new life that they are called to live in Christ and their old lives, which demanded a different ethic. This is what was going on in the church in Crete. It was, this, it was a place where, where people were, had come to faith, they'd, they'd come to faith in Christ, and yet they're, they're trying to navigate this tension, how they used to live, how the world around them is, and then how they're called to live now. It had come to Paul's attention that this church was in a bit of trouble. They were being distracted, distracted from the, the core message of the gospel, from what was meant to be central, the truth of the gospel, and they were instead focusing on what Paul refers to as Jewish myths, uh, useless genealogies, simple things, uh, things that were peripheral, peripheral and tri- trivial. And so he writes to this guy, Titus, he says, keep, keep the gospel center, keep the grace of Jesus Christ central to everything that you do and raise up leaders who can help you to manage this conflict as well. You see, the reality for the church, for, for Christian community. Wherever Christians come together uh, as the body of Christ, where fellowship happens, is that it's always going to be fraught with difficulties and trials. And that's simply because we are sinners who are coming into close proximity with one another. And we're actually called to move towards one another and pursue a depth of community that is actually impossible if it was just up to us. It's impossible unless the Holy Spirit is with us and the grace of Jesus Christ flows between us. And this has always been the case. If you've had problems with the church in the past, you've experienced no new phenomenon. It's always been like this. Some people like to point to the early church as this, this uh, model of the perfect church. Like that's how we've, we've all just got to get back to how the, the early church was, the, the very first church. But if you actually take a look at the, the majority of the, of the letters in the New Testament, they were written to directly address problematic issues that were in those churches. And even if you go back as early, in the earliest uh, chapters of the book of Acts, where the church just got started, as early as Acts chapter 6, the, the church in Jerusalem, the very first church, was, was being divided over issues of favoritism and prejudice. Even consider the disciples who argued with one another and, and made power plays against one another and complained about one another. And that was when Jesus Christ was their pastor. <laughs> It's when the church walks through rough times, the church is walking through a well-trodden path. There's no such thing as a church where everybody is immune from being hurt by one another. If you do find that church, if you do find the perfect church, stay away from that church because you're the one who will ruin it. We're sinners. We're imperfect people. And if you haven't been offended 
or put out or annoyed or just frustrated by anybody else here in this church, just be patient. You'll get your turn really soon. We're sinners. We are called to, into this close proximity with one another. You see, in this church, sinners are drawing close to one another and we're going to hurt one another. It's inevitable. It's, it's unwanted, but it's bound to happen. Do you know why? It's because we're called to actually love one another and loving others is incredibly risky. It just has to be. See, loving someone is far more than just uh, doing nice things for them. It's at least that, but it's actually a lot more. To truly love someone is to open yourself up to them and actually make yourself vulnerable with them. You can't truly love someone unless you're putting yourself into a position where you, uh, where you can be hurt. That's what, that's what love entails. Whether that's the love between a husband and wife or between a parent and a child or between brother and sister or, parent, or, or cousins or, or in the family of God, what, friends, when we love others, we're actually, true love is actually putting yourself into a position where you're going, I, I'm trusting you with me. This is a big call. But this is exactly what Jesus has called us to do. To, to love one another as he has loved us by laying down his life for us. The love that Jesus calls us to is a gritty love and it stings. But it's also a beautiful love that heals and administers grace. You see, if you don't want to be hurt, your only other option is to withdraw entirely from the church. But, but you, won't be, you won't be able to stop at the church. You'll have to withdraw from everything. You'll have to isolate yourself from everyone. There's this really excellent quote by C.S. Lewis where he says <clears throat> in The Four Loves, he says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And friends, I think we are walking into a pandemic of isolation where people are leaving the community of church, communities of friends, of work, even family. I know too many people, myself personally, men especially, who are isolating themselves from the communities around them, being told that I, I need to just protect me and my own and make sure that nobody comes close to us. Nobody comes close to me. If you disagree with me, you're, you're out. They're isolating themselves and their families away from community and they're becoming hardened, bitter, and destructive. Friends, a, community, a Christian community where we attempt to love one another, it, it's bound to at some stage you're going to get hurt. And it's because of our own brokenness. Sometimes it will sting because our brokenness leaves us really sensitive to the afflictions of others. 
Because of something that's happened to us or some experience we've been through, all it takes is someone to say one thing and we are back there again. Sometimes it's things because of our, because our, brokenness, because of our brokenness from things that we do, it leaves us insensitive to how much we afflict others. We say things without really thinking through the ramifications of them. We, we do something without really thinking the ramifications of the action, how that's actually hurt someone. It's just our, our brokenness. And sometimes it, it stings because of the plain old brokenness of life. That life just <clears throat> happens and it hurts sometimes. I think about this with Bree. If you um, knew today uh, a close sister of ours, um, sister in the faith, she passed away suddenly about four weeks ago, a bit more than four weeks ago. And I remember thinking when I heard, not long after I heard the news, just if I wasn't part of a community, this wouldn't hurt so much. Because of how much we just loved and adored her. You see, there's no such thing as drawing close to one another in love and never being hurt. But there's also no such thing as withdrawing from one another and not being hardened beyond repair. So what do we do? Well, I think we need to know that even though Christian community is risky, it's really worth it. It's really wonderful. It glorifies God. You see, there's a secret power that occurs when simple things like grace and love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and reconciliation are experienced at the hands of another believer. It's initiated by God in us and flows through us to others. God administers his grace to us in strangely and surprisingly powerful ways through one another. Like when you hurt somebody else and they really forgive you, that is special. When you experience reconciliation with a brother or a sister where there was once in your heart nothing but bitterness towards them and you experience the new life of that relationship, you go, oh, wow, okay, the Holy Spirit does good things. Tim Keller talks about it in these terms. He says, to be loved but not known is nice, but it's shallow. It's superficial. We, we need more than that. That is, people love us, but they don't really know who we, were, who we are, and we're worried that if they really found out who we really were, they would reject us. To be known, but not loved, that's our worst fear. That somebody would actually know who we truly are, and then reject us as a result. That, we're terrified of that. But to be known, fully known, and loved, that's heaven. That's what we get in Jesus Christ. And the potential for the church is that we would put the gospel central and truly love one another regardless of what we find out about one another. That we would continue to be merciful and kind and gracious to one another as we find out more and more about one another. This is why I'm so encouraged by books like Titus because it not only validates any hurt and any sting that we might experience in the church, but this letter also points us towards the decisive factor that brings about healing, which is the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Grace changes everything. When we realize, when it dawns on us, that we don't deserve God's love, yet he loves us. 
That we don't deserve the, the sacrifice of Christ, and yet he did so anyway. We don't, we don't measure up. We would never even have even chosen God if it was just left to us. And yet he is the one who pursues us. Grace changes everything. And so we're going to be walking through this book for the next uh, seven weeks or so, understanding what, what, how Paul's letter to this pastor in Titus, how that will help us in our life together as a church. Today we're going to begin by just walking through the first four verses. So let's just walk through this now. Uh, the letter begins in typical fashion with Paul acknowledging that this letter is indeed from him. He, he calls himself, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that's amazing. Because once upon a time, Paul was a servant of God and a persecutor of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. The, the church that Jesus Christ had, had begun, Paul was aiming to tear it down, tear down the Christians. But now he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. One who has been set apart by God for the mission of, uh, uh, and to be sent out into the world to tell the world about Jesus Christ. This is who Paul is now. His entire identity has been changed. Then he goes on to speak of what his purpose is. He says that he is sent for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now let's just pause there. Let's not be scared by this word elect. Paul is simply referring to God's people, those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Here and in so many other places, Paul uses this term election to refer to God's grace in selecting sinners whom he has chosen to redeem, to bring to faith, to justify, to sanctify, and ultimately to exalt to glory with Jesus. Let's just be clear. God owes us nothing. Sometimes we think of this idea of election that what it is is that God is um, saving people who don't deserve it and not saving people who do deserve it, but none of us deserve it. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. God owes us nothing. And yet, because of his great love for us, he sent his son to save his people, those whom he chose. God's gracious election does not preclude our own free will, nor does it make God, God responsible for those who are not saved, nor should it lead to pride in anyone who is saved. If you're a Christian, you did nothing to stand out to God. It was not because of your loveliness, it was because of God's loveliness that you are saved. And many people recoil at this for a number of different reasons, but can I invite you just to consider the robust and comprehensive assurance that God's gracious election gives us? If you are a Christian, you are God's elect. It means that your eternal status, your eternity has been determined by a God who loves you and not because of your own efforts. It means that God is the one who saved you. God is the one who took the initiative and came to you in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who sent the Spirit to open up your heart and your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is the one holding on to you, not you onto him. And he, is the, he alone is the one who has secured your eternal future. And Paul's purpose here is as an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ, apostle, sorry, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, that he would serve God's people. He would serve the elect, helping their faith to go deep and for them to grow in the knowledge of the truth. 
Paul wants his readers to lean a bit more on Jesus, to trust in him, to, to go deeper in their faith with him, and to grow in their knowledge of the truth, that the, that the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ would invade and, and, and flood their minds. He wants the knowledge of the gospel, gospel to be rich and vibrant. Why does he want this? Well, he tells us, he goes on, because the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now we can sometimes get nervous around words like godliness or, or works or piety, good behavior. But actually godliness is quite simply the natural byproduct that, that begins inside of someone when it dawns on them that God loves them and that by his grace he has rescued them from eternal damnation and instead given them eternal life. When we sit in that, when we think about that, that this is what God has done for us, it leads to godliness. And the order here is critical. Faith in God and a knowledge of the truth of the gospel always precedes godliness. If we needed to be godly in order for God to save us, we'd all be stuffed. Because none of us can do that. None of us have what it takes to actually be godly out of our own efforts. Every single person who has ever lived is a sinner and deserves God's just wrath against their sin. But it is God's grace in saving us from our sin and from eternal, eternal damnation that leads us to godliness. When we, when we let our minds wander in that and to, and to sit in that and think through, I have been saved from my sin. And there is an eternal future that has been promised to me in Jesus Christ, and that is mine. And when, when we start getting those things lined up, godliness begins in our hearts and, and comes out in our lives. Suppose I was to ask one of my kids to give their siblings... $5 from their own pocket money every day for a week. Now, $5 per day for a week, that's not much for, for us. But for my kids, that's everything. That's, that's all their pocket money that they've been saving up. In fact, a lot more than what they've been saving up for a long time. It would be a huge ask for them to do that. And they might do it out of some kind of obedience. They might, they might be like a little bit of like, I'm not really sure why dad's asking me to do this, but I'm, I'm happy to do this on the first day. The second day, they, they might do it again, but it's going to be pretty begrudging, and they're going to be like looking for ways they can get it back or just sneaking it back or whatever it is. The third day, I doubt they'll actually continue with it. However, if they knew, if they believed that I would, like what? that I was going to give them $1,000 at the end of the week. That would change everything. And it's not just that they would go, oh, I hope Dad does that. It's actually, the, I've taken the $1,000 out of the bank. I've put it in a clear Tupperware box. I've written their name on it so they can see it. I've just said, don't open that until Saturday. It's yours. It can sit in your room, but it's not yours until Saturday. Now, would you give $5? to your brother or sister every day for a week, that would, that would release their, their tight grip with their tiny little hands of their $5. That, that would make them all the more, oh, yeah, I can totally do that. I can totally do that. Then They're not giving it so that they can get the $1,000. It's already theirs. In fact, 
I think them giving $5 to their sibling each day would produce in them a strange joy. It would be like crossing the days off in a calendar, getting closer and closer to that day, the great day of days, Saturday, when they get $1,000. It would be a reminder of the gift to come, and their hearts would swell with joy in the anticipation of Saturday. It's the same for us. When we let our hearts sit in the grace of Christ, with the reward of eternal life to come, we will gradually and increasingly become eager to do good works. In fact, Paul's going to use that exact same phrase at the end of chapter 2. He's going to say that the gospel makes us a people eager to do good works. See, obedience to God in every facet of our lives shouldn't shouldn't be a grudge. It actually brings us increasing joy, more than anything else. Why? Because we're drawing closer to that eternal life to come, which God has promised to his people. See, if you're here and there's an area in your life where you are struggling to obey God, yes, there's discipline that is needed. Yes, there's, there's got to be an attempt, Right? But at the absolute core of things, what we need is deeper, stronger doses of the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. What we need is to know what we have and have been given in Jesus Christ in eternity to come. And this is where the grace of God is just insane. That God has promised eternal life to his people. So let's ask a question. When did God promise eternal life to his elect? Was it when they put their faith in Jesus? No, it wasn't then. Was it when they had been at church long enough? No, it wasn't then. Was that promise made to the elect when they proved themselves to God that they were really serious about following him and obeying him? No. Was it when they finally mustered up enough effort and energy and got over that that sinful thing in their life? No. Was it when Jesus died on the cross for their sins? I mean, that sounds pretty theological, but no. It was way before that. Paul says that God made this promise of eternal life to his elect before time began. Is that not the most outrageous thing you've ever heard? Like, I can't get my head around that, before time began. Because the word before is a measurement of time. So when did this happen? Well, before time began. Well, when was that? Well, think of when time began. It was before that. Like a few seconds, a few hours, a few minutes before that? Well, that's a measurement of time, and time didn't exist yet. Like, that's my mind bent in half last night as I continued to rehearse. I was like, what? Before time began. Before the concept of time materialized at the command of God and seconds started passing by, God promised eternal life to his elect, to those who would have faith in him. I defy you to invent something more wonderful, life-giving, or reassuring than that. His promise to his people predates every single one of us. Isn't that proof then that we did nothing to earn it? Isn't that proof that because God promises to his people before time began that we did nothing to earn this? And the place where this touches our hearts the most is when we are confronted with the magnitude of our own sin. When our sin and our brokenness 
rises up, when past and present, when that comes to our minds, it's like a cold pang that flashes across our hearts, the memories of our hearts, right? Like if, if, if just the worst day of your life was suddenly recalled to mind, and whether that was a product of something that you did, whether that was a product of something that was done to you, where there is guilt and shame and there's this thing in your past or even in your present you hope no one finds out about. When that comes to our mind, we go, oh, it jars us, right? We flinch. It sucks. And in the same way that when we have a headache, we reach for the Nurofen or the Panadol, or when we've got dry lips, we reach for the pawpaw ointment, when we are confronted with guilt and shame, reach for this verse, that God promised eternal life before time began. Before you, did thing, before you did that thing, before that thing was done to you, God, who knows the ins and outs of that thing, promised you eternal life. See, some of us are convinced that we're special, but in a bad way. We're convinced that you know, God's love, it, it's, you know, it's, it's completely unconditional, except for me. I, I've managed to find the loophole that if, anybody, if there's anybody that God doesn't love, it's me. Like, yes, I know that there's, there's an, no limit to, to, the, to God's grace for all, to us. It's an, it's an endless ocean, but I've found the limit. I've found the bottom of that ocean. Like God loves everybody. He's patient with everybody, but I alone have managed to push him too far, and we become convinced we can become convinced that we are the special ones. We are the ones who have pushed God too far. We've exhausted him. If that's you, because I know that's me. Uh, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way. But if that's us, let's let the Bible show us how dumb we are sometimes. Paul says that God who cannot lie promised you eternal life before time began. God can't lie. Massage those words into your heart. God can't lie. If God could lie, he wouldn't be God. He made a promise in eternity for our eternity. Can you imagine how significant those words would have been to the Cretans who first heard this? Where they're in an environment where you can't trust anybody. They're in an environment where you've got to be on your guard against everything that everybody says. And that's not too different to ours, is it? There's not really, I mean, you might disagree with me on this, but I don't think there's a single news source that isn't biased. There's doubtful that there's a politician who doesn't have an agenda. We can't really trust what we read anymore. There's not a single one of us who is innocent of lies and deception, whether that's to ourselves or to others. But God can't lie. God can't lie. If God lied, he wouldn't be God. So God can't lie. And with that spectacular, unmatched, and eternal integrity, he made a promise that for those who trust in him, he will carry them into his own loving presence for eternity. That's the future for every single person who puts their faith in Christ. And can I just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Christ, that's not true of you. It can be true of you, though, if you would simply come to Jesus with empty hands of faith and go, I've got nothing to give. Would you save me? Would you save me from my sins?
in a prayer from the Puritan Richard Baxter, he said this. He said, we bless your name. He says, Richard Baxter praying. We bless your name as those who are entering into glory and hope to be with Christ forever. We foresee by faith that happy day. We see by faith the new Jerusalem, the innumerable angels, the perfected spirits of the just, their glorious light, their flaming love, their perfect harmony. We hear by faith the joyful songs of thanks and praise. The time is near. This flesh will quickly turn to dust and our delivered souls shall come to you. Our life is short and our sorrows will be short. Then we shall have sight. This is why Paul uses this really important word, hope. Friends, we've got eternal life to hope in. And not the kind of hope where we say, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, because that's an uncertainty. The way the Bible uses hope, biblical hope is like looking at a box with $1,000 on it, in it and knowing that it's going to be yours in a few days. Like, it's coming. Just as, as, long as, as long as the days took over, it's coming. Eternal life is coming for those who trust in Jesus. Not because we're really good at being Christians, but because God who cannot lie, promise it to us. We can trust him. Moving into verse 3 then, this is why Paul was called to preach. He says in verse 3, in his, that's God's own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That phrase, in his own time, is a gentle reminder to us that God has a schedule that he is sticking to. And we can get frustrated that God doesn't stick to our schedule sometimes. Like we come to God with prayers and we expect them to be answered by tomorrow. Or we expect them to be answered by next week because that's our timetable. But God has a timetable that he is sticking to. And his timing is absolutely perfect. There is not a single thing that God does that is out of place, out of time. It's, never late. it's like what Gandalf says, a wizard is never early, is never late. He, he arrives precisely when he means to. God's like that, just a billion times better. In his own time, he revealed the truth of the gospel in Paul's preaching. That's what Paul has said just here. Now, God, of course, revealed the truth of the gospel in the preaching of other apostles as well, but Paul was God's chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And as we're thinking about the gospel being proclaimed to those who don't know God, those who don't fear God, and God's own timing with this, can I just encourage you, friends, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're praying for an unbelieving relative or a friend to receive the gospel, keep praying, keep witnessing, keep trusting in God's perfect timing. Keep praying, keep witnessing, keep trusting in God's perfect timing. For Paul, preaching was crucial to this. It's by hearing the gospel preached and proclaimed that sinners will turn to the Lord. And so throughout this letter, Paul's going to continue to tell Titus to continue to preach the gospel, to keep the gospel central, to keep telling people about the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ alone, and to be encouraging the church to have the gospel on their lips and to be teaching that to one another. 
In fact, Paul's going to use around 10 different words to explain this on about 16 different occasions to compel Titus to keep preaching the gospel. Paul has been entrusted with the gospel and he was commanded by God to proclaim it. This is why in our church, careful, prayerful, planned and deliberate teaching is such an important value for us as a church. I've got friends of mine who are pastors who minimize the, the role of preaching, saying it's, it's actually not that important, we should do other things. And Listen, I'm not the kind of person who believes that the, the sermon is absolutely everything, but I still think it's really, really critical for the life of the church. That when God's people gather together, we should hear from God's word and we should hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be doing that. And I also believe that it is also on each one of us to get good at proclaiming the gospel to one another. Get good at bringing the gospel to bear upon one another's lives as we go. Paul finishes off this opening, this greeting with the warm and affectionate words, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Titus was not Paul's biological son, but he was his true son in their common faith. Titus was someone who Paul trusted to lead this church. He was a partner and a co-worker of Paul's. They, they travelled together, but he was also more than that. He was a true son in their common faith. This is the nature of the saving power of Jesus Christ, that we are made into family. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. We are brought together by our common faith in Jesus Christ. He binds us together in love. And just as I've prepared, been preparing this this week, and just as I've been having conversations with some of you over the last few weeks, and even just listening to some of the prayers in our prayer time before church and some of the ways that we've been talking today, I feel like this is something that God is leading us to as a church, to a depth of family that we are yet to be. God is leading us there. We've got, see, we've got to consider how, how heavy duty this is, that we are brothers and sisters. That's, that's not small talk. That's not, like little, that's not a throwaway comment. This is heavy duty stuff. It's more than niceties and pleasantries over a couple of Arnott's Bickies after church. I mean, that's great. Small talk is awesome. I'm, I'm actually coming around to that, I think it's, it's actually good for us to, to do that. But family is both gritty and wonderful. Family is gritty. It, it's hard and it's got a significant cost to it. Kirsty and I have been experiencing that particularly this week with some of our family members. It's been gritty. It's been hard work. But it's also... Wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Like it's tough, but it's wonderful. When, when family is functioning in a healthy way, family is a wonderful gift from God, a wonderful institution for us. And we're called to be more than a social club. We're called to be the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the thing about family is that when family is functioning in a healthy way, and I'm fully aware that a lot of us don't come from healthy, particularly healthy families, maybe some of us from very dysfunctional families. But when family is functioning in a healthy way, 
it actually means that for us, in those families, in family, you don't have to pretend with family. You don't, you don't have anything to prove with family. Like with family, you don't put on your makeup to go to breakfast in the morning. Well, I hope you don't. You don't have to, you know, put on your Sunday best with family. Can I say this? You know what, you know what I mean by Sunday best? Like, I don't know, it's, it's this phrase that I think my grandparents used to use, that you'd put on your Sunday best to go to church, you'd, put on your, you'd save your best clothes and your best everything, and you go to church on your Sunday best. Can I say this? To hell with the Sunday best. Like, what if, our, what if one of the things that we said in our church somehow was, I'm going to church, I'm going to put on my, put on my worst, put on my Sunday worst. Now, I think we should at least be wearing clothes when we come to church. That's not what I mean, but what I mean by that is you don't have anything to prove here. You don't have to pretend here. One of the things that Kirsty and I noticed in our kids' lives um, when, they, when they started school is that their worst behavior came out in the afternoons after school. Like in the afternoons, that was when they, that's when the big meltdowns happened. That's when the big uh, tantrums happened. And it was just this like, it was, it's, like if you want to see volcanoes, come to our house in the afternoon of the week. It was just mental. And we just like, what? we don't know what to do a lot of the time. Um, um, And we got really worried that they were being like that at school as well. <laughs> like we got really worried that they were like screaming and fighting and kicking and all those kind of things at school. And we talked to the teachers and they were like, no, no, it's all good. They're, they're being angels in, in, in class, which we were really grateful for. You know. um, and then I think it was that one of our teachers, one of the teachers explained this to us. Someone explained it to us. So the reason why it's happening in the afternoons is because at school they are holding it together. They are holding everything together. They're navigating the social dynamics, the friendship things. They're trying to you know, make, make it look like they're cool and they've got something to offer and they've, they've got to prove themselves and justify themselves and they've got to make it look effortless and they've got to be a good person and be good at all these things. And then they get home and they just let go and they, just, they unravel. They just completely unwind. It's like they just let their guard down and go, Ugh. And whoever explained it to us said, actually, it tells... You should tell you that home is a safe place for them. It's safe enough that they can unravel, that they can fall apart at home. And I would like us as a church to be a place where it is safe to fall apart, safe to come and unravel on Sunday and go, I'm actually not doing very well at all. Where we come and if, someone, if we've had a really good week and someone says, how was your week? We can say it was really good. And if we've had a really rotten week, we can come to church and when someone says, how is we can say, it was really rotten. You see, it's, it, this isn't about trying to pull off a really close community. It's not about trying harder because none of us actually can do this. Like I said at the, at the start, we're called to a depth of community that is actually impossible for us unless the Holy Spirit is with us and unless the gospel of Jesus Christ flows between us unless we actually receive the love of Christ for us first and fully receive it and then love one another in response to that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if you love your dream of community, you'll destroy community. But if you love those around you, 
you'll create community. That is, if you have this idea, this is what the church should be like, and this is how I should be made to feel when I come to church, at best you'll frustrate people, and at worst you'll crush them. But if you come to church, if you come to conversations, life group, uh, into the family of God where you say, this is my family, this is my brothers and sisters, this is where I can unravel. If you come willing to love one another as Christ has loved you, you will be the benefactor of wonderful community. My hope and vision for this church is, is that we would be a church that truly grasps the grasps the grace and love and mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ so fully and so deeply and so completely that the natural outcome would, that we, would be that we become the family of God. Not a perfect family by any metric, but sinners who have been called to draw close to one another and to love one another as Christ loves us. So as I finish, I want to give us a handful of things, really simple things that we can do, practical things, which say, I love you to the people around you. Things which say to the people around you, you don't have anything to prove here. You don't have to pretend with me. I've got four things. There's a lot more we could be doing, but these are really simple things that I thought up. Number one, stay in contact. It's the easiest thing in the world to pick up your phone and send a text to someone that says something like, hey, how's your week going? I'm going to spend the next three minutes praying for you. How can I be praying for you? And I say three minutes because like, sometimes, if, we, if we're honest, we don't pray longer than that. But I'm going to spend a few minutes praying for you. How can I be praying for you? Like, If you receive that text, how awesome would that be? And if you don't have a prayer point, I'll give you one. Um, Your prayer point is, I'm too proud to think of a prayer point right now. So pray for humility for me. Sorry, that was a bit mean. Sorry, but if you don't have a prayer, like, just think through, like, we all need to be prayed for by us for something. What if just this week you texted three different people at random times? Don't text me. There are people in this church who do text me and see how I'm going. Matt Ede is one of them. Regularly, just gets in contact with me. How you going, mate? How can we be praying for you? Wonderful. What if, we, what if each one of us did that for three other people this week? That would have an immediate and wonderful impact on our church. Second thing, show up. Now, this one might get me in a bit of trouble, but I've been in ministry long enough to know that those who get the most out of community are those who show up. They show up on Sundays, they show up to life groups, they show up to the groups, And that that prepares them to show up in the really important times, to actually show up in the really important times. Now, life is busy. I get it. I absolutely get it. And if you are the kind of person who works on Sundays, um, you're rostered on on Sundays and all that kind of stuff, I I want you to know that I'm, I'm not condemning you for that. But there is a bit of a trend where... I don't know, I'm not sure when it started happening. I think it was already happening before my time. Where if you were a Christian, church was this optional extra that it depended on how you felt, whether or not you could be bothered. Unless something else came up that was you know, more, in, in, more appealing to you. But I, I genuinely believe that there is a direct correlation between how, how much you feel a part of community and how much you show up. 
And I know that life groups don't suit everybody, and I just want you to know that we have some coals in the fire to just kind of help that out a little bit. But show up. Show up in people's lives. Number three, open up. Make yourself vulnerable with someone. And it's really scary to do this. I know, but I know that a number of you have actually been doing this for a while now. You've started opening up. And I know that you're enjoying the benefits of it. You're actually sharing things about your life that you didn't think you'd share with anybody. Now, I don't necessarily mean that you have to go and spill the beans, everything, with somebody just after you've met them. That might be a bit too much for them. I don't recommend that. But I kind of encourage that whatever you, like, wherever there's a boundary of, like, this is the information, this is the kind, this is stuff about me that I'm comfortable with people sharing, just do that. Just push it out a little, just a little bit. Where you feel insecure, where you feel inadequate, just share that with someone. And then this fourth thing is directly related to this, and it's really on the person who, when someone opens up to them, and that is to bring grace. Bring grace to one another. When someone does open up, bring grace to their situation. Love them. Say thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Remind them of God's love for them, of Christ's love for them. You don't have to be a counselor. You don't have to be a psychologist to do this. You just have to... I mean, I find just a few handy sentences, phrases up my sleeve. They're not fake. It's just things that help me to articulate how I actually feel. Things like, that sounds really hard. That sounds like you're carrying a lot right now. That's a huge burden to be carrying. I'm sorry you have to carry that. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's lovely, right? Or how about this? When someone opens up to you and shares something that they might feel shame about or they might feel guilty about, we could respond like this. Did you know that Jesus knew this about you already? And your sin didn't scare him off? And that doesn't scare me off either. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, that's got a bit of curry on it, doesn't it? Like, if you, if you were to, I mean, imagine if you open up to someone, made yourself a bit more known, and they'd return by making you feel a bit more loved. Oh, wonderful. How about this? Can we take this to God right now together and pray? Like, do you want to come with me to the feet of Jesus so we can just go and tell him this? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. This is, this is what I think is meant by the family of God. When Paul calls Titus a true son in the common faith, I don't think that that's just like a throwaway line. That's, that, that's a, that's a heavy-duty thing. And that's what we're called to. And I think that that's what we all want. I think that's what we all want. The final line from this opening section is one that Paul uses in a lot of his letters. He says this, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Now, we can read past those words very quickly often. 
But those two words, grace and peace, those are heavyweights in Christian parlance. And they kind of remind me of um, what's known as the Aaronic blessing. Not the ironic blessing, the Aaronic blessing spoken by Aaron. And it was a blessing in Numbers 6 that God commanded Aaron and the priest to bless the people with. It goes like this. You've probably heard of it. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Now, I don't know that Paul is necessarily saying grace and peace as shorthand for the ironic blessing, but those two words are there. And it's a wonderful blessing. It was this blessing that when, when the priest would say to God's people to bless them, they would say this, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In other words, may God be with you. Grace and peace. Now I've read that a thousand times. But it was in my, actually appeared in my Bible reading yesterday and as I read through it, I noticed something I never did and that was the verse that comes after that which I've always just kind of like I don't know, I've just hopped over it and gone to the next chapter. But it says this. God says, In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites, and I will bless them. They will, by, by pronouncing that, they will pronounce my name. And that's just it. This is all about God. I don't know if you noticed this. I didn't notice this until I read it in a commentary this week. But five times in those four verses, Paul mentions the name of God. He refers to God a further two times and then also names Jesus Christ twice. So nine times out of those four verses, God the Father and God the Son are named. These four verses are quite literally flooded with the name of God. Friends, this is all about God. This is all about his glory. This, what we're doing right now, this is all about bringing glory to him and honoring him and serving him and worshiping him. So like these four verses, may our lives be flooded with the name of God. May our church be flooded with the name of God. May we form a community that knows and loves God. And by that, because he knows and loves us, that we would know and love one another. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.